Okay, Google, what is Women Tech Charge? On the website podcasts.apple.com, they say, hosted by Dr. Anne-Marie Imafidan, MBE, CEO of www.stemits.org, Women Tech Charge is a series of candid, inspiring and often funny conversations with inventors, entrepreneurs and even real-life spies. Welcome to this episode of Women Tech Charge. I am your host, Anne-Marie Imafidon, and today I have a guest joining me internationally for the first time ever on the Women Tech Charge podcast, introducing Lillian Rinken, who is Director of Product Management at Google. Voice has this very natural ability to help people in ways that we've never seen before, right? I mean, whether that's kids, right? That, Like I noticed my daughter learned her ABCs faster than my son because she grew up with this technology and she could ask the product to do that. You know, we're seeing seniors, right, who are losing their um, significant others and, you know, they find companionship, let's say, in something that they can talk to. We see technology being able to help minorities that maybe never had access to the internet until now, maybe can't read but can talk, and so all of a sudden now they have this power that they never had before. Hi, Anne-Marie. All-round superstar <laughs> and top woman in tech as well. Um, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you because you are in the Valley, because you are at Google and because you are a product manager. And I think you're the first one that we've had. On a daily basis, what does it? What does a day look like? Essentially, I lead you know, the set of things that the Google Assistant does Mm -hmm. Uh, across all of the various devices. Um, you know, hundreds of millions of people like use the assistant, but but they don't always know they do. So Google <laughs> Assistant, for those that don't know, right, is, is the thing that you talk to or the thing that you get help from to help you get things done. You know, everything from playing music, let's say on a speaker, like a Google Home speaker, to, you know, navigating home on your phone. Um, it does, you know, I think over a million things, um, but people don't always know. Uh, so. it, and it uh, famously uh, calls your barber or called your barber. Is it barber or hairdresser? That was that was the Google Assistant as well, right? Yeah, so there's a there's a feature set called Duplex that enables the assistant to make calls on your behalf. Um, and recently this year, we all sent out Duplex on the web, which lets you essentially fill out forms like booking a car rental, let's say, for you on your behalf. So what you're going to hear is the Google Assistant actually calling a real salon to schedule the appointment for you. Hello, how can I help you? Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is insane, I think. Looking back at it, I know it hit all the headlines and it was everywhere that this is, this, is, this is the future kind of already here. When was the last time you were wowed by something you saw? Given you're at Google, I'm sure there's lots of incredible things that you get to see that some of them you can't share. What's one thing that made you go wow that you can share? So I have been wowed by bringing translation to public places like hotels. We, we had this big, tremendous uh, interpreter moment at CES actually this year where we bought interpreter to hotels like Caesars Palace and, and to see people's faces uh, react to real-time translation is just like amazing. 
Well, I'm going to agree with you on that as a wow. As someone that spends a lot of time in hotels in, in, in I'm not going to say random places, but lots of different places around the world where I haven't learnt that language that that, that million people uh, speak, um, I think that would definitely be a big wow and save me uh, a lot of hassle. Is there anything in all that you see and all that you discuss and all that you're thinking about and all that you're planning for that worries you? You know, I think part of the assistant wave is that uh, we now have consumers that have these devices in their homes. And, you know, for me, one thing that, that worried me was as I saw my kids growing up with the technology is whether, you know, they were they were being taught to be rude. Like for us, I mean, we developed a feature called Pretty Please, which, which essentially we worked with experts to figure out how do you promote, you know, polite behavior through positive reinforcement. That's like the first thing we're doing, you know. Um, definitely we take the responsibility of having these um, assistance uh, close to you, um, you know, very top of mind, and, and we very much, you know, think about what are the things that we should build to make people's lives easier. So uh, manners is one of them. Is there anything in terms of the kinds of things that the assistant is listening to or the kinds of unsavory uses for having a, an assistant that can book things on your behalf? Is there anything like that that, that comes to mind? We definitely think about privacy and security when we do anything on the assistant. Like we're very, very thoughtful about that. I, I worry, mm. I don't worry specifically about, um, I think what you just asked, simply yeah. because we have technologies. I think out of all the assistants, and of course I'm super biased, but I think we have the best assistant. Uh -huh. We have technology like voice match, which for example, let's say like you and, and your partner share a home, um, mm -hmm. It recognizes your voice versus your partner's voice. So, for example, mm -hmm. if your partner asked to book, um, let's say, something on your behalf, it would know that it wasn't you and wouldn't do it. I know there's a lot of worrying about, you know, I don't want these devices because they're listening. You know, absolutely, like that's like number one top of mind issue. The, the assistants don't listen unless you, you say the hot word. So the hot word, for example, for the Google Assistant is when you say, OK, Google, or hey, Google. Hey, Google, book a table for four. Sounds good. Hey, Google, call my brother. Hey, Google, call my brother. Text Carol. Can you text Carol for me, too? Hey, Google, who just texted me? Yo, Google. Kevin, that was great. But we haven't made Yo, Google work yet, so you have to say hey. Until we hear that, we don't. the assistant doesn't actually listen. I'd say the other thing, too, is Anything the assistant listens to will always be available in uh, this thing called My Activity. Which I've seen, yeah. You can download the, the audio files and see the kind of timestamps of when, when it has been listening and recording. Exactly, yeah. And you can always delete it. So, like, control of that is completely in your hands. I, the more that people use the technology and the more that people become digitally literate, I think there are... Every now and then there are times when there are either headlines or, I mean, even myself, people come up and say, oh, do you know that, you know, yesterday I said, I don't know, ice cream. And since then I've only had ads for ice cream. And actually this morning an ice cream turned up at the door, a voucher for ice creams turned up at the door. So I wonder whether there's something that you're going to, that you're already considering or already thinking about in terms of the features that you're building, how we ensure that there, there, are, there is a line that we know isn't crossed by them or that people are comfortable with so is that something that you ever come up against or you ever have to kind of work out with your with your team it's a lot of power and a lot of responsibility to think about what are the things that essentially when you're inventing the future right like interpreter mode and a lot of these features that we have on assistant you know it, it takes a lot of responsibility and and absolutely we we absolutely think about security and privacy and all these things and and like you said i think Oftentimes we have technology that's ahead, maybe 
many years ahead of when uh, the community or, or users are actually ready for it, and that's absolutely mm. something we take into consideration. Mm. So even if, for example, you know, um, you you tell us where your home is and where your work is, we can infer when you're home and when you're at work. Um, mm. But you know, we we wouldn't necessarily use that data unless you wanted us to, right? Unless okay. I'm at work and I say, hey, hey, Google, you know navigate home, right? Then we're going to mm. use that data to, to figure out what the directions are and not necessarily like just showing off for the sake of showing off, right? Yeah. And showing yeah. that actually this is good for businesses and it's good for users and, and this isn't about, you know, anything negative. It's, it's really thoughtfully um, put out. What excites you about the future of technology given that we've made so many mistakes with, with diversity up until now? Yeah, no, and I was going to say, I think, you know, we also think very thoughtfully, how can we use this technology to move uh, minorities forward to. So I don't know if, if Anne-Marie, you've, you've heard of what we've done in India, for example, with some of these feature phones that came back the last couple of years. Um, but we really thought about, hey, how do we bring these really low-cost feature phones to places like India, you know, like South America, where actually literacy of women is like, let's say 20% lower actually than men, where maybe some of these women have never had access to the internet, have never had access to technology. Like, the, I mean, there's all these case studies that we have, I wish I could share them with you, you know, that show these women who were like, basically they, you know, ignored in these villages that now all of a sudden can tell all of the men in the village how long it will take to, to get to downtown because the assistant can tell them that traffic is bad. Voice has this very natural ability to help people in ways that we've never seen before, right? I mean, whether that's kids, right? That Like I noticed my daughter learned her ABCs faster than my son because she grew up with this technology and she could ask the product to do that. Uh, to, you know, we're seeing seniors, right, who are losing their um, significant others and, you know, they find companionship, let's say, and something that they can talk to, um, surprisingly, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to, like I said, in these in these sort of next billion user markets, um, we see technology being able to help minorities that maybe never had access to the internet until now, maybe can't read, but can talk. And so all of a sudden now they have this power that they never had before. The other thing as well that, that does come up as well when I when I think about this is, is the trust side of things too. So I think that that's the other thing that um, with a lot of technologies and a lot of headlines that have now come out, um, and this isn't this isn't really specific to Google. This is more about the Valley and just the tech industry in general and some of the other scandals that we've seen, which arguably, you know, ultimately you see in any kind of industry. There's also that sense of trust. You know, how do you make sure that your that, that trust isn't abused or that you're able to maintain trust of, of the users and of people in general. Yeah, no, absolutely. Trust is, is also one of those things that we think a lot about. For example, even on um, many of the phones that Assistant is enabled, yeah. we have a light Assistant that maybe you haven't given permissions to, and so it actually can't do personalized things. The default light Assistant that you get is going to be able to answer like generic questions that you can get, let's say, from Google search, but not be able to do personalized things like navigate me home because you haven't given mm -hmm. us permission to know that, or, you, or maybe you haven't told us even where your home is, right? So a lot of this is, is a very, you know, intricate formula of figuring out like, okay, how do we develop exactly as you're saying, Anne-Marie, like trust with the user and showing mm -hmm. them value, right? Like, okay, the reason I want you to tell us, you know, where your work is is so that I can help tell you if traffic is going to be worse today, that maybe you mm -hmm. should leave a little earlier, let's say, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not for any other reasons, not to advertise for your work or any of that, right? We, we take mm -hmm. um, this information really, really seriously. 
Time for a break. Send me a message using the hashtag, hashtag Women Take Charge, and please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to podcasts. Product management is one of these new, I say new, I guess new-ish, disciplines or um it's an it's in its early stages i say as a discipline um that you can say i am a product manager or a senior product manager or a you know whatever the evolution is so for anyone listening who is unsure of what that means how would you describe it well so a product manager you know i think of as the ceo of the product you know they really are the person that you know defines what the product should do what's its strategy, you know, how it should pivot. Um, they define essentially if, you know, if, depending on the methodology that teams use, but, you know, if people are familiar with Scrum, they would define like the product backlog of features, let's say, that the engineering teams would build, the priority of those things. Those are kind of part of the agile framework, would we say? Right. Mm-hmm. But even in a waterfall model, you know, you would you would have product managers define what the teams would do, you know, milestone by milestone. Yeah. So, I mean, I think they're, they're really important. Um, they're also, I think you know, kind of the glue that holds the team together. So, you know, if things go well, the product managers should be shining a light on their team and, you know, giving kudos. And if things go bad, then they're the ones who have to step up and explain, like, you know, why things aren't going well. Like, they really (laughs) have to be the CEOs, you know. A lot of people make the move and then they come to me, you know, in many different companies that I've been at, I've helped people transition from engineers or testers, let's say, to product managers. It's very common for people to tell me, like, a year into the role, like, gosh, this is so much harder like so much more time and so much more, you know, like uh, having to deal with high pressure situations. But it's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what you signed up for. So little Lillian, what did little Lillian want to do when she grew up? Well, well, little Lillian, you know, I think uh, I lived in uh, three different continents actually before the age of 12. So uh, a little bit of a hippie in some regards. My mom's Chinese, by the way. My dad's Spanish. Um, my parents actually met in London, in England, actually, um, going Ooh. to uni uh, there. And then they moved to Venezuela. That's where I was born. And, and my first language, therefore, is Spanish. And then things started getting bad in Venezuela. And uh, my my parents had the foresight, you know, to kind of see that things were, even though we had a good life, that, you know, it was time to move on. and. Uh, so we immigrated to Canada, actually, to Vancouver, Canada. And I didn't know English, so um, I learned English, actually, in an ESL class. And, um, you know, unlike California here, I, there's lots of people that speak Spanish. Um, in Vancouver, um, you know, in my ESL class, I was the only person that spoke Spanish, probably the only person that spoke Spanish in my entire school. Super lonely time. Uh, kind of led to my love of, of math, you know, because math is kind of a universal language and it was something that I could do even without really understanding the language. And that was kind of the beginning of, of you know, a love for problem solving, to be honest. You know, math kind of led me to, to wanting to focus on things that allowed me to problem solve. You know, actually, in the very beginning, um, I thought I was going to be a doctor, so I studied biology, went into university studying biochem. Within my first year, I realized, you know, actually, I love math and, and really started liking programming, so switched majors uh, and led to a computing science degree, and that, that was the beginning of, of my, you know, engineering career.
how much did you swing from the math to the computer science? Was it something that you kind of because computer science to the on the periphery of that initially for you? Was it was it uh, math and then actually it was a, it was a quite a quick jump then to computer science? How did you flow between the two? Yeah, you know, well, so the the fortunate thing was that my mom actually was a computer programmer. I always had her growing up as a role model, and and to be honest, I really wanted a degree in math, but I wasn't sure what I would do after university with a degree in math. Like I was one of the top students in my class, you know, and had done the internships, and so by the time I was entering my final year, I had a role in IBM, and I went abroad um, backpacking for two months. Uh, when I graduated, thinking, oh, I have a role. You know, I know what I'm doing. In September, I'm moving. It's like all clear. And I came back, and there was a letter in the mail, and it said, oh, you don't have a role. So actually, I was unemployed and um, didn't have a role when I graduated, even though I thought I did. But I'd been asked, actually, because I was also a volleyball player, so I'd been asked to apply for the, the Rhodes Scholarship. So I mm-hmm. went about three months, you know, um, getting everything ready. I was captain of the volleyball team, had, you know, all of the different things that you need to do that and uh, didn't get it, was became a finalist but didn't get it. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, my, my life is a total failure. Here I am. It's all, the- fall, all falling to pieces. There were you, the computer major, with the mother that kind of had already done it, had already slayed the path, and it was all just going wrong. Or pitong, as we like to say here. Everything was going wrong, exactly. And then, you know, honestly, I just decided to apply for an engineering role as I waited to see if, uh, because I didn't have a plan B. No one was really hiring, actually. People were getting laid off. But luckily got this job, and, you know, luckily it was a company, um, it was a BI company, a business intelligence company at the time. And then they got acquired by a French company called Business Objects. Yes, they did. That was one of my first roles in my team. I was a business management analyst I remember when it moved over because there was a whole load of migration work that we had to do at the company I was working in to to move from that to business objects and we had universes you had data universes how crazy hmm interesting so that was your initial role and then and that was an international role then working across uh on the crystal uh, business objects sorry yeah it was it was an international role where in order to grow as quickly as possible we essentially set up shop in Bangalore and in Shanghai and hired essentially new grads and mm-hmm. had a huge engineering team really quickly, let's say. Um, and so I was flying back to Shanghai and to India like once a month. It was kind of crazy. I became less of a coder and more of a setting the direction of the team, like, okay, what should they code? What are the features we should be building? And that was the switch to product management. And were you happy with that transition? And I ask this question because I now run Stemets, I guess, as we, as we know. And it was something that I played with and toyed with before I went full time. A lot of mentors that I had were saying, you know, if you go off and do this, you won't be technical anymore. There won't be anything technical left for you to do. And, you know, if you stay here, you can stay in a really super technical kind of role. And I think it took me a while to figure out that unless I was going to cling to the developer position, which I didn't even have at that point, I was going to end up moving in that kind of direction. Is it something that you you embraced as a as a step up or as an evolution or did, were you still kind of apprehensive about leaving the coding and the, the more development side of things behind? I, I remember thinking, you know, 
programming languages, they, they change every year, right? So to leave the programming and move on to a more product-y type of role, what would that mean? Would, would I lose my skills? How will I be graded in this other role? You know, But I realized that you know my passion was actually more in the strategy and the and determining what to build versus how to do it. And so I took the leap, you know, and, and actually um, decided for business objects at the time to, I proposed, I think at 25 or something, that they should have a product management role that didn't exist. Of course, you should have product managers. The company's this big. And, <laughs> and then as I did that, I got recruited by Microsoft. So I, I took that role and moved to Seattle. That's fantastic. And so, yes, you said you were recruited into Microsoft as a product manager. I know you were you worked on Skype, you worked on MSN. What was your highlight, actually, of, of your roles and what you worked on while you were at Microsoft? Yeah, so, well, I mean, I worked at Microsoft and, um, you know, it was at a time when Bill Gates was still there. He was CEO mm-hmm. and he had this program called Think Week, actually. I was, I think, six months into the role and decided that I, I found a hole in the advertising uh, marketplace ecosystem and I wrote this paper on like, we should have a creative marketplace that would like link artists to, um, you know, smaller to medium advertisers to create their creatives, you know, and he liked okay. it. And so I became a lead very quickly uh, because of that. It was a weird time because um, he would have these two weeks where Bill would read all these papers that would get submitted and you could be like the janitor or you could be like a VP, but you could write the paper. He would read it and if it was a good idea, he would fund it. That was kind of like my early growth at Microsoft. And so I built the thing that I wrote the paper about, um, the creative mm-hmm. asset management platform, which is still used. I think um, for the display advertising team there. But so at Skype, you know, I I led the indirect monetization for Skype. So this is like how does how does Skype make money, right? Uh, having businesses pay for calls and, and mm-hmm. bringing ads essentially to Skype, which we had to figure out how to make indirect monetization. But you know, I didn't really love, um, I felt like I could do advertising and I had done it for so many years, but I, it wasn't a passion of mine. And so I kind of took another leap, I think at some point where I decided to go back to being an IC. And so I took this like sort of weird leap of faith role, um, but it, it it allowed me to grow tremendously because I got for the first time an opportunity to see how like all of the VPs interacted with one another, how they thought of success for their own areas, you know, how to like negotiate, let's say, across different product units, because they really are like own, their own companies. And then through that, actually, I got to know the research team really well and got mm-hmm. to get inundated with all of the, let's say, five, 10 year out like projects. Got really fascinated actually at the time with the, the growth and, and kind of optimism of machine learning at the time. I was seeing models that were all of a sudden now enabling things like transcription and translation. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden now you could actually productize. And so there was, there was this project called, um, well, it was really this project around like enabling real-time translation and pairing that with Skype. So, you know, a lot of people video called, right, on Skype. What if you could, you know, include this model like real time in the conversation and enable like real time closed captioning translation during a call. I don't even remember anymore, but I was looking at these models and just thinking like, oh my God, like this is gonna be the next wave of, of evolution really. Like. So thank you very, very much Lillian for bringing the wows of your life and the wows that you are allowed to share <laughs> with us from Google. Thank you very much for joining me on Women Tech Charge. Thank you.
This is Women Tech Charge. Subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcasts. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 